talk tonight is the third uh, uh, in a series of four talks on the Abhidhamma, and we're talking about the four Paramatta Dhammas, and that's the, what is translated as the four ultimate realities, or the four realities which are directly experienceable. First night we talked about consciousness, the very the spheres of consciousness, the sense sphere, the fine material sphere, the immaterial sphere, and the super mundane consciousness, the different stages of enlightenment, both the wholesome uh, wholesome karmas and the unwholesome karmas of uh, consciousness. And the second night we talked about the different factors of mind that arise with consciousness. And you'll remember that there was the contact with the sense object, uh, the uh, feeling tone, the volition, the concentration, a whole series of uh, wholesome mental factors like mindfulness, tranquility, lightness, wisdom, compassion, loving kindness, uh, generosity, faith. And there were the unwholesome factors of mind, essentially the hindrances, uh, sleepiness, greed, hatred, and delusion in one form or another, uh, wrong views, etc. Tonight I want to uh, move to another area, the third of the uh, realities that we uh, experience very directly. And I want to talk about the experience of the material world, or the materiality that we are a part of. And essentially, they, we could say that we as human beings are none other than a mental, physical um, entity. We have a mind, we have a body, and they relate, and they interact, and they're interdependent. And we've talked about the various uh, parts of the mind, or the different types of consciousness and mental states, and tonight I want to talk about the materiality, and how it's experienced, how it arises, and so forth, and so on. In the West, here, we live in a very materialistic society, and uh, materiality is preeminent in, in our uh, culture. And uh, since the scientific revolution some couple hundred years ago started, we have uh, spent vast amounts of energy and time and brain power on studying the material world in a way that we have learned uh, we have accumulated a tremendous amount of knowledge, and we've learned how to manipulate uh, the physical world to make our lives um, more convenient, maybe. But certainly to, to, to bring us some degree of uh, material well-being, uh, higher standard of living, physical security just in, in, in being a human being. And all of us have, have certainly benefited tremendously from the uh, explosion of knowledge that has been gained. But I think uh, even though our standard of living and our material well-being has certainly improved with this knowledge, I think we have to really seriously ask ourselves whether all of this knowledge has burdened our mind or freed it. Has all of this knowledge that we've gained from the sign of revolution 
benefited our mind in terms of opening and freeing the mind from its habits, its uh, limitations, and its uh, lack of understanding. In the material world, the most obvious and uh, most present experience of materiality is our own body, the most intimate physical material thing that we know. And traditionally, and I think probably universally, we are identified with our body, how it looks, how it feels, uh, how it smells, and the, the whole appearance of this body. Size, shape, tone, color, and the whole uh, appearance of it. And uh, we in America put a premium on uh, certain characteristics whether it's a blonde hair or a thin figure or white skin or blue eyes or uh, youthfulness and a certain amount of energy, etc. And uh, all that's well and good uh, that we do take and have the knowledge of how to keep this body healthy, how to uh, watch our diet and get our exercise and, and do those things that we uh, need to do to keep the body reasonably healthy so that we don't live with so much discomfort. But, as we know, there are abroad in, the, in our, uh, available to us a great number of diets and uh, exercise regimes and uh, a lot of contradictory uh, claims made for how we can best take care of the body. You know, some people eat meat, some people don't eat meat, this amount of cholesterol, that amount of exercise, etc., etc. And one can be left with uh, more confusion than clarity if we look very deeply into what's available for that type of knowledge of the human body. The reason that there can be so much uh, confusion and lack of clarity in uh, the way that understanding of the body is that they, the aim or the foundation of those claims is varied. Uh, some people want to, uh, the claim is for uh, weight uh, maintenance, some is for energy maintenance, some is for youthful maintenance, and it's not for uh, the, the, the basis of these claims is not for freedom of mind. And the way that the Buddha came to know and to uh, talk about materiality was from the basis or with the aim and intention of freeing the mind, the knowledge that's useful to free the mind from identification with and attachment to the body. So the whole understanding of materiality as taught by the Buddha is going to be quite different than the way we understand it scientifically. I think a lot of us have the uh, impression, you know, we stand in front of the mirror each day and we do what we do, and we dress the body and we do what we do with it. And we have a sense that this is my body. And yet, if we really paid careful attention to our relationship to our body, we would understand that 
we really don't have much control over it. We can change its posture, but we and we can feed it or uh, get it a little bit of sleep or something. But much of what the body does is out of our control, and we really don't have much control over it. And yet we still say it's my body. We can't control whether it uh, uh, feels good or not. Sometimes um, we have very strong self-images, some of them very positive, some of them very negative. Uh, we get fascinated with other people's bodies. We get, um, we have a tremendous amount of attachment, we have a lot of shame, we have a lot of embarrassment. We have a lot of relationship to this thing that we identify as ourselves. That type of knowledge, or that type of uh, relationship, is bondage of the mind. That is being caught by something and uh, uh, suffering and uh, getting excited and feeling uh, limited by our relationship to who we think we are, this body. And every one of us in the room have had uh, something that we don't like about our body. It's too big, it's too small, it's the wrong color, it's the wrong shape, it's something. And we've been unhappy because of that. And we have tried how many diets and exercises and other things to get a body that we can be happy with and have been unhappy most of the time in relationship to our body. What do we need to know about this body? What do we need to know about the whole material, physical experience to be able to loosen our bondage to and our fascination with uh, this thing? How do we free our mind from this limited understanding of who we think we are. The Buddha said in his, uh, maybe his most famous, or his most highly regarded the discourse on mindfulness, he said, for the purification of beings, for overcoming sorrow, distress, for the disappearance of pain, and for the eradication of sadness, for the realization of the free mind, one should abide ardent, clearly aware and mindful of the arising and vanishing phenomena in the body. The Buddha said, pay attention to the experience that arises and passes in the body. Free yourself from unhappiness, sorrow, distress, disappointment. Realize the free mind. Pay attention to the body. Pay attention to the physical sensations and the experience of the body to free the mind. And as such, he talked about the body, the physical experience, as being one of the four foundations for developing mindfulness, for, develop, for developing the mind that is free. The other foundations of mindfulness, of course, are the mind that we talked about the first night, materiality, um, the mind, mental factors, uh, feelings, uh, perception, and materiality. So what is it? What is materiality as defined by the Buddha? Or as uh, what way of understanding of the body or materiality uh, leads us to or can lead us to freeing the mind from bondage? The way the Buddha approached the whole investigation was uh, by observing and paying attention to his own body. 
not from some theoretical construct of what a being or a human being was. There were prevailing religious opinions in his day, and he <coughs> didn't bother with them. He went, he actually paid attention to his own experience. And it's called the, uh, he paid attention to the phenomena of the body. And what we do when we practice meditation, as some of you did this uh, weekend down at the Cloud Mountain, is pay attention to the phenomena of the body. As you breathe in, you breathe out, the body moves, there's sensations, there's feeling. And as you sit, you come across different experiences in the body. Of course, mental experiences too, but we primarily locate our attention in the body. The first thing that one discovers or the way that the Buddha talks about materiality is in the feelings that we have. And for those of you who are sitting in those chairs right now, you might notice that there is a sense, a feeling of hardness somewhere in your body. That hardness, the Buddha, that hardness, the Buddha identified as the first uh, of the primary elements Earth. It's the earth element. It doesn't mean that there is earth somewhere in there. The earth element refers to the very experience of hardness, any degree of hardness. Whether it's the hardness of that chair underneath the bone, or it's the softness of touching your skin or a piece of cloth. It is a degree of hardness. And that experience of hardness is one of the primary this uh, box here the four primary elements the first four are primary elements and the first one is the earth or hardness the softness the quality of hardness or softness that we can experience and in the course of meditation you're going to come across a lot of uh, different experiences of hardness sometimes it's hardness sometimes it's softness uh, there's a sense of being uh, when you feel the texture of something, it can feel very harsh, it can feel very smooth. This also is a experience, a phenomenological experience of this abstract element of earth. When you're walking on the floor, walking on the ground, the feeling of the foot on the floor, hardness. The feeling of a bone, hardness, softness. Even the feeling of a feather pillow, even though it's very soft and very light feeling, is still there's some degree of uh, hardness, softness in the experience of the earth element of uh, materiality. The second is the water element. The water element is the abstract element of cohesion. The sense of things holding together, being stuck together, being compacted, or being uh, sticky. Very difficult to experience, but we know from our uh, uh, logic that things are stuck together. The body is stuck together. It, doesn't, it isn't just dust blowing in the wind. Things stick together. And we get a, can get a clearer sense of uh, the cohesion of the materiality when we look <coughs> at the liquids and we see how they are held together. Uh, water stays stuck together, or mercury stays stuck together.
The third primary element is the fire element. We experience abstract fire, or uh, we experience the fire element as heat. Any degree of heat or coldness or coolness is the experience, the phenomenological experience of the fire element. And whether it's uh, being out in the sun and feeling that heat, or whether it's feeling the heat of digestion in the belly, or sweating, or feeling some ice, or whatever it is, it's the abstract element of heat <coughs> that we're feeling. And the fourth is the air element. Which, which letters are the water fire in the air? Huh? Which letters are the water fire in the air? Uh, first, second, third, and fourth. Uh, C, D, E, and F. And the fourth is the air element. And the way we experience this is it's a quality of movement or extension in the body. And we can feel it, vibration, pulsating, uh, tingling, an oscillation, uh, a feeling of uh, stretching or expansion. Analogy I use to show how we feel uh, the air element is if you take and you pump a, a basketball or a football up with air, what happens to it? It gets expanded, it gets stretched, it gets full of pressure. If you take the body and you breathe in, what's going to happen? It's going to get extended, it's going to get pressurized, it's going to get, it's going to expand and stretch. So that when, in your meditation, you're paying attention to the breath and you feel expansion and tightness and stretching and uh, that movement, this is a phenomenological experience of the air element. So these are the four primary uh, elements that we're able to actually directly feel and experience in the body. It's important to understand that there is not actual earth, air, fire, and water in here, that we are somehow getting a, getting our mind on a little piece of earth, a little piece of fire, a little piece of water. These are abstract uh, elements. Uh, they uh, can be experienced as earth, air, fire, and water. But in fact, these there is no physical thing that these refer to. Western scientists or physicists or whoever they are have... Uh, discovered that when they break down matter, uh, they look at atoms and they break down atoms and they look at subatomic particles and they break down those and they look at the smallest thing that they can find, uh, they find that there really isn't anything there. And uh, I want to just read this description of how they have come to understand matter or materiality. It's from uh, Fritjof Capra's book, The Turning Point, in which he writes, Subatomic particles are not made of any material substance. They have a certain mass, but this mass is a form of energy. Energy, however, is always associated with processes, with activity. It is a measure of activity. Subatomic particles, then, are bundles of energy or patterns of activity, which is what we're experiencing here. Movement, flickering heat, whatever. The energy patterns of the subatomic world form stable atomic and molecular structures which build up matter and give it its macroscopic solid appearance, like bodies and buildings and cars and things. 
thus making us believe that it is made of some, some material substance. At the everyday macroscopic level, the notion of a substance is quite useful. But at the atomic level, it no longer makes sense. Uh, atoms consist of particles, and these particles are not made of any material stuff. When we observe them, we never see any substance. What we observe are dynamic patterns continually changing into one another, a continuous dance of energy. And this is something the Buddha discovered 2,500 years ago with the power of his mind, that material elements are merely fluxing energy, felt as the abstract elements of earth, air, fire, and water. So, thank goodness the Buddha was right. <laughs> or should I say, thank goodness Western science is coming along. <laughs> So these are the first four of the uh, material experiences that we can know when we develop our power of mind. How am I doing? Can I ask you a question about the Okay. Did the Buddha ever attempt to take the elements and relate them to a system in the body? i.e. the skeletal system is being formed, or the circulatory system being formed, the water, in, in, that, in that type of relationship. I don't know. How it manifests itself in the body or our perception of it. Because the Buddha talks about various conditions of the body, uh, from a, 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 what would you call it, a, a, a common language and understanding of blood and and whatnot and whatnot and whatnot. That's one level, that's one way of understanding the body, and the Buddha talked a lot about that. But this, the way, what we're talking about now is the uh, abstract experiential qualities of the body in terms of the, um, the way that the body is experienced. Okay? We don't experience bone. We experience hardness. We don't experience blood and circulation. We experience vibration tingling, pulsating. Okay? So, in the Abhidhamma, this is how the Buddha talks about the body. There is no body. There is an experience of elements, mental and physical elements. These are the physical elements that we're talking about. So, earth, air, fire, and water is felt by the body. It's felt by this sensitive uh, quality of the body, or the... Um, this box here, what number is that? G. The G box is the various senses that we have, and they're called the sensitive elements. So the sensitive elements is G, huh? And one of those is the body. Another one is the eye. Another one is the ear. So the fifth, or let me say the body, is the ninth. Number nine is the body. The body feels tangible materiality. The eye, number five, also has a sensitive eye, uh, or there is a sensitivity to the eye. That is a material uh, experience. So that is a material quality that we can experience. So the five senses, eye, ear, nose, tongue, and body. If 
five, six, seven, eight, and nine are an additional five types of physical or material experience. The sensitivity of the body of the eye of the senses. So I ear, nose, tongue. I ear, nose, Five, six, seven, eight, and the ninth is the body. And we all know this. We've all felt the body. We've all felt the eye materiality when it contacts or when the the sensitivity of the eye comes in contact with a vis visible object. Of course, we have seeing consciousness. The eye is a material quality. The visible object is a material quality. Each of these sensitive elements of the senses have their stimulating elements so that number 10 is form and color. What we see with the eye is form and color. You may think you see a man, uh, you know, six foot two, wearing whatever it is and, you know, middle aged. You don't see a man middle aged. You see form, color. The mind interprets that and does something with it. But what the, what the eye actually sees is form and color. Are you following me? Pretty good so far? Okay. The ear hears sounds. Number 11 is the material element of sound. <coughs> The nose contacts or senses the material element of odor. The tongue senses, feel the material element of taste. Number 13, taste. Now, the stimulating elements are four. One, two, three, four. The sensitive elements are five. What does the body feel? The body feels, or tangibility, is a combination of the first four. The body feels hardness, heat, uh, softness, vibrating, tingling, pulsing. So that each of the sensitive elements, the five senses, has their corresponding five material Stimulating elements. Are you following? Okay. You can begin to understand that this is a little different understanding of materiality than Western science. Okay? Now, where do we go from here? One Thing that it's important to understand about materiality. And when we talk about the mind and talk about consciousness, we talked about wholesome states of mind and unwholesome states of mind. Unwholesome states of mind are what we try to uh, get a handle on and to suppress or to uproot from the mind so that the mind becomes free. Okay? So there's a, there is a sense of the mind being wholesome or unwholesome. And hopefully we... we transfer or we uh, exchange wholesome for unwholesome. Yeah. 
in the physical experience, there is no wholesome or unwholesome quality or evaluation or determination of any materiality. Body, feeling, wholesome or unwholesome, there's no judgment of it. Seeing form and color, there's not some wholesome forms and colors and some unwholesome forms and colors. Ears, there's not some wholesome ears, some wholesome sounds, some unwholesome sounds. Ear is what it is, sound is what it is. The mind makes of it pleasantness, unpleasantness, wholesome or unwholesome by its relationship to it. But in and of itself, the sensory contact is not wholesome or unwholesome. Therefore, what that means is we don't have to somehow eradicate certain experiences from our life in order to free the mind. Unwholesomeness is not in the external experience. It's in our mind's relationship to experience. Get what I'm saying? Okay. So, we have these senses. We have these experiences of at each sense door. There are more material elements that I'll talk about as we go on. But I want to start talking about where these experiences, where these physical material experiences come from, or how do they arise? How is it that we have ears and eyes? And how is it that we smell and hear and feel sensations? And uh, where does all this stuff come from? What's the cause of, or what are the conditions that give rise to these experiences of having a body? Wholesome or unwholesome in the sense of freeing the mind? No. Yes, of course. I mean, if somebody, you know, we, we would have to say, you know, nuclear bombs and car accidents and things like that is not very healthy for the body. Right. Definitely. I mean, it can traumatize the body. Uh, it can traumatize the physical body. But it cannot traumatize the abstract element of earth, air, fire, and water. And the mind is not freed or held in bondage by those uh, experiences, those traumatizing experiences. It's our relationship to them that determines freedom of mind or not. Uh, yes, of course, uh, the body can certainly be traumatized. In the Buddha's analysis of his own experience of his body and his mind, he began, or he discovered, the causes for, or what gives rise to, different material experience. The Buddha didn't t attempt to explain uh, the ultimate origin of matter, you know, like the Big Bang or something like that. He just took it as a fact that, well, matter exists, and we have to deal with it, we have to live with it, we have to work with it, and how do we work with it? What do we need to know about it to be able to free our mind? Going backwards and searching for the ultimate cause, uh, if it's a big bang or something like that, does very little for freeing the mind. Yeah? So you find out it's a big bang. Does that change your relationship to pleasant forms and unpleasant sounds? No. That type of knowledge is outside of the Buddha's concern. Not concerned with that type of knowledge. He took it for... Uh, an obvious fact that material experience exists. 
we see, we hear, we feel, we have sensitivity. Let's work with that and free the mind from what we know uh, from our own experience. So the Buddha enumerated four different causes for the arising of material uh, experience. And these are going to be listed across the top. Double A, A, B, A, C, and A, D. Okay? A, A is not cause for uh, is materiality born of karma? In the first night's talk, we talked about karma being those uh, the volition behind actions. The skillful or unskillful, the wholesome or unwholesome, the uh, loving or hateful, generous or stingy. Volition behind speaking or behind physical actions or behind the inner thoughts. Kana can give rise to physical, material experience. I'll go on and explain it. But I want to list the other, uh, what is it, AB, is the mind. Let me just briefly say, uh, the mind can obviously give rise to physical experience uh, when you get angry and you get really tight and irritated. And you get this tension and this feeling of hardness and stiffness and heat in the body. That mind of anger is creating or is giving rise to that physical experience. Simple enough. Okay. Kama, the mind, AC, is C. What is called Utu? Uh, poorly translated as heat. I, I prefer to. Uh, sometimes it's called heat or seasonal. Seasonal conditions, but it's the environmental conditions. The sun is out, beating down on us. We get hot. We sweat. That environmental condition giving rise to physical experience, a material uh, experience. And the last one is uh, materiality born of Again, a poor translation, but it's born of food. And it's not just, you know, the, uh, the beans and tofu and things that you eat for dinner, but it's the essence, the nutritive essence that uh, fuels the body. And it's very easy to, to see that that's so uh, when you eat uh, something sweet. You have a corresponding feeling in the body, a change in the body. When you don't, you have corresponding feelings of material. The body feels in a different way. Or when you eat something that's very, whatever it is, can, can, can make the body feel very pleasant, very unpleasant, very full, very uh, still, calm, vibrating, whatever it is. But it's very obvious that uh, food, or when the essence of food gets into the body, touches these cells, you can really uh, feel how the material uh, experience of the body is conditioned by or is a born from that nutritive essence. So these are four causes, conditions, or uh, four, yeah, four causes for the arising of material experience. Now, I'm talking about the first area, karma. 
how to say it. Did you ever wonder why some people are born with extraordinary physical conditions? Healthy or unhealthy, extremely beautiful and the parents aren't so outstanding? Or uh, we're born with a body and it has its uh, qualities, its uh, ability to see and hear and whatnot. And it also is born with uh, a whole, uh, something like a pre- a preconditioned uh, computer tape in there that gets played out as this body lives. Where'd that come from? Why is it so different among people? And uh, how can siblings who come from the same parent be so different? How can personality be so different? How can the body be so different? One way we can understand it is that it comes from uh, the distinctive material qualities of that body are a result of previous coming, previous actions. And uh, this, of course, assumes that you have some belief or some understanding in life progressing from one existence to another. And if you don't believe in uh, that karmic, the law of karma or moral causation giving rise to uh, repeated uh, existences or births, well, there's a lot of material on the subject and uh, I won't try to convince you. I'll let you find the material and read it. But there certainly is a lot of overwhelming evidence to support that. But everyone has to decide that itself. Now, right. so the materiality that arises at birth uh, at the moment of, uh, what would you say, conception, but it's not just conception, it's the moment when the consciousness from a past life links to the consciousness of this life, huh, is when the karma born materiality arises. So, the very fact that we are born as human beings is a result of our karma. A lot of really skillful, wholesome, good karma. Tons and tons of it. Good actions have resulted in us being born as a human. It is a, as in the, Buddha, in the Buddhist understanding thing, it is a rare and a very fortuitous uh, condition to be born a human. And it's because of tremendous amounts of accumulated good, wholesome, skillful actions in the past. As much as we might not believe it, it's true. Mm -hmm. So the very fact that we have a body is a result of coming. And I'm going to list these nine going across. There are nine different types or groups of material experience born of coming. And the first one is the eye the five senses. The eye, the ear, the nose, the tongue, and the body. One through five. Okay? Do I have to write that down? No. Alright. I can move faster. <laughs> okay, so the first five going across are the eye, the ear, the nose, the tongue, and the body. They, the material elements of those sensitivities is present at conception. <clears throat> if not, I mean, it's not present, but the potentiality is there at conception. There we go because it certainly isn't developed with just that amount of materiality. All of us get a sex. Also determine uh, either femininity or masculinity, number six and number seven, is a result of our common The number eight is what is called the material base for the mind. 
the Buddha said there is a material base for the mind. Of course, we know there is a material base for the eye, for seeing. We know there's a material base for hearing. And the Buddha said there is a material element in which the mind is based. Now, there's been big arguments uh, ever since the time of the Buddha. Well, where is it? What is it? Is it the brain? Is it the heart? What is it? The Buddha, there was a, a theory prevalent at the time of the Buddha that said, oh, the mind is based in the heart. And uh, they had an understanding that it wasn't the actual physical heart, but there was a little cavity of, uh, in between this and that and, and whatnot, and certain color and shape and all that that is called the heart. And uh, the Buddha did not agree or disagree with anybody. He didn't say it was the brain. He didn't say it was the heart. He just said there is a material element. So I'll leave it up to you to discover in your own sensitive practice where your mind is located. But I'll give you a hint as to how to find it. When you feel very strong emotion, and we say, you know, that, that that's our mind. That's our real, that's our mind. Where do you feel it? Where do you feel emotion? Now, if you watched, uh, what was it, Bill Moyers a couple of weeks ago, you know, he had people telling him the mind is located throughout the body, all over the place in the body. Well, maybe. Don't accept anybody's word for it. Find out for yourself. I don't know. And there, number nine is what's called the, the uh, uh, vitality. Uh, you remember when I was talking about the uh, different mental states, we talked about psychic life, the, the very uh, mental juice, psychic life. Uh, there is also in the body physical life. And that's number nine, uh, vitality. <coughs> These nine groups of materiality, of material experience, are a result of, or are born from, karma. So, if we have uh, a sex, masculine and feminine, well, then it's got to be over here in this list of 28 material elements. And number mm -hmm, uh, 14 and 15, femininity and masculinity. And these are the 14 and 15. Yeah, the R is the sex elements. 14 is femininity, 15 is masculinity. And since we have a physical <coughs> basis for the heart or for the mind, uh, it's called the Hadiya Watu, and it's translated as the heart basis, but that's just a convenient uh, smokescreen. Because uh, we don't actually know. But uh, if there is a physical basis for the heart, and it's located over here, number 16, it's the mind-based element. And since there is a material, vit uh, a vital materiality, uh, this has to be located here also, number 17. It's the vital principle, the life element. The vital principle. Okay, so we've got one through 17. Number 18 is the nutritive element, the, the sap, the internal sap that feeds, so to speak, all of this material existence. So now we have the first 18 of these material 
experiences. All of them able to be experienced, felt, uh, or observed in some way. I was reading something about this today, and it said that sometimes one's accumulated karma can be uh, more predominant or have more effect than one's parents' genes. So that if one's karma is extremely wholesome, and even though your, your parents don't offer you the best uh, whatever it is they offer, that one's karma can can actually be more predominant, have a greater effect in the life of being, in the, in the physical, material experience of being, than one's parents' uh, contribution. So, are we following pretty good? Any questions? I need a break. Okay, yeah, please. Okay. If you're so lucky to be born in the human body, and because it is a result of a lot of karma, how do some of us turn out to be equal? That's as far as I went. Yeah, okay. We all have a tremendous <coughs> accumulation of wholesome and unwholesome. Uh, actions in our past. Uh, we have all done everything many, many times. A lot of good things, a lot of unskillful things, and we got it. We're carrying around the potential of the result of all those actions. Okay? That's in our stream of consciousness. That potential uh, result of all those actions is in there. Due to something in our past life, some momentum of wholesomeness we were born a human. And that's not the end of karma. That's not the end of our accumulation. Now that we have this body to work out our karma, so to speak, we still have the potential of all these wholesome and unwholesome stuff from the past. And so we're presented with uh, situations. And depending on what we do in this lifetime, if we cultivate wholesomeness, then we draw to us wholesome past results. If we're bad characters, we're going to draw to us a lot of unwholesome past results. Okay? And so, we have a choice. I mean, you know, someone stands up here and says, blah, 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 and you have a choice of hearing and understanding and, and, and reacting with loving thoughts to that person or with hateful thoughts. Your choice in this moment makes you, you know, for this moment, wholesome or unwholesome, skillful or unskillful, in your terms, evil or not. So we have a choice all along the way. Well, what the choice do the Bosnians have? Well, that's the, we're getting into a whole talk on karma, and uh, that's another whole chapter in the Abhidhamma, and it's a, it's a good question, and uh, I'd love to go into it, but I'd never get through this. <laughs> If we did. But there certainly is, it's, the way to understand it is through, uh, through uh, uh, more details in your understanding of karma.
that there is some karma unfolding there. Yeah. I don't want to take too much time. Yeah. Can I just rephrase something and see if I understand correctly? Yeah. Okay. Wholesome and unwholesome. Not rather than one overcoming the other, but that choice you choose to reinforce. I mean, is it is it that factor that you choose to promote? It's rather our reaction in a moment, our relationship to this experience. I'm standing here talking. You could say, this guy's a jerk. This is boring. He doesn't. And you get yourself into a real funk. That's your relationship to this experience. Somebody else could be sitting here saying, geez, this is great. This is just like, and you get yourself into real ecstatic, joyful. That's your relationship to it. I'm just doing what I'm doing. Or this, this, this experience is just happening. Your relationship to it determines whether your mind is wholesome or unwholesome in relationship to it. The experience just is what it is. Yeah. What are the stimulating elements of the mind? Stimulating elements. Form and color. Stimulate the eye sensitivity. Number 10. Number 11. Sound <laughs> stimulates the ear sensitivity. Number 12. Odor stimulates the no sensitivity, and number 13, taste, stimulates the tongue sensitivity. Earth, air, fire, and water, or a combination of them, makes up tangibility that stimulates the body, number nine. Okay? Yeah. Uh, this is comma, I guess, but yeah. if you are reborn as a human because of good actions, what choices of things were there before humans? And how can these things have good actions? What choices were there before humans? What that mean? Well, I mean, why did I choose to be a human? What no, no, if I wanted to be no, someone else? No, I didn't mean choose, but um, what sorts of things were options? We, yes. Options. What do we have for options? <laughs> <laughs> you know, are, we, are we going down to insects? And I'm interested with the association of good actions with things other than human. Yeah. The, the, the Buddhist cosmology is 30, posits 31 planes of existence. This is another comment. Come around. Posits 31 planes of existence. Human, uh, the, the human realm being the fifth. You know, so there's four below us, and there's 26 above us. <laughs> now wait, that sounds pretty like, hey, we're not doing very good. You know? <laughs> we're kind of low on the ladder, but no. And of course, lower than us is uh, beings in the hell realms, animals, ghost realms, hungry ghosts, things like that. Beings, uh, we say, in the higher realms would be uh, heavenly beings of one sort or another. And there's a whole gradation of them from just barely a little bit better than humans to pretty exalted. Hmm? Now... Just an interesting footnote. The Buddha did say being born human is the best place to be born. Because in the lower in the realm slower than human, uh, the suffering is immense and tremendous. And the, the one's mind is totally filled with pain and suffering. Very difficult to practice mindfulness there, <laughs> to free the mind. In the realms above human, it is so blissful and it's such a wonderful, soft and beautiful place. It's hard to remember to practice. And so you just kind of uh, float away. It's just not very careful. Being born in the human realm, we got a little bit of both. We got plenty of things to be pretty difficult and painful and unhappy and suffer with. And we got a fair amount of, you know, blissful, uh, good states. Yeah? 
And so it's a perfect place to develop equanimity of mind. Free the mind from both. Yeah. I'm a little bit confused about the sensitive elements. Yeah. Um, they seem to be kind of listed in the same column as things like earth, air, fire, and water, yeah. form, and sound, which are all things that can be perceived. Yeah. But the eye doesn't perceive itself. No. And the ear doesn't hear itself. The right. Doesn't smell itself. I, I don't quite understand the relationship. Okay. It is a, there is an eye sensitivity. Uh, it's not the retina, but there is a sensitivity to that. There's a sensitivity to it. We don't usually notice or experience that sensitivity. We usually see the color. We usually hear the sound. But in one's quieter moments, in pretty profound mindfulness, the mind can become aware of either the external stimulating element, or the internal receiving sensitive element, or the sense consciousness. One of those three, the mind can know. And that, that sensitive element of the senses is very subtle, and the mind has to be very still. But sometimes the mind just focuses on it and, and you get it, so to speak. It's not something you can kind of do by choice, but when the mind is very receptive and, and uh, able to perceive such subtlety, can, it can experience sensitive uh, elements of the senses. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. Thank you. Um, a lot of my, a little bit of what the um, stimulating elements, yeah. it sounds like you're talking about them as being kind of out there. Yeah. But I don't understand how there can be any aspects to them except for the five consciousnesses and how you can have it over out there, outside of that. And also, and how the mind can perceive them outside of perceiving the eye consciousness. I mean, it seems like the mind can know the eye consciousness, but it can't know. Yeah. Yeah. No. The eye. Yeah. The eye is like a camera. It just takes a picture. Whatever's out there. It takes it inside. The mind knows it. The mind. The eye doesn't know a thing. You know, in that in that seeing consciousness, in that eye consciousness. Uh, but the mind takes that and and uh, understands it in a way that you know we've been taught to make sense out of what we see, hear, feel. Da 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 da. That's the mind interpreting the unconsciousness of it. They're yeah. not interpreting the yeah. form. It's a, it does interpret the form. Yeah. It, uh, next week, when I start talking about the stream of consciousness, I'll talk about what happens. You know, the eye takes in a picture, the mind reflects on it and determines that there was seeing consciousness. And then it reflects again and it determines that it was a color. And then it reflects again. And after about six reflections, different types of reflections, it comes up with the fact, with the, with the knowledge of it. Oh, man. But it takes a lot of reflecting in the mind to come up with that. And as we work, yeah, well, this is more next week. Uh, I'll go to say. Are you asking really whether there's anything out there? I'm not asking if there's anything out there. I'm asking how you know that there's anything out there. Yeah, it's the mind that knows. Interesting. Interesting uh, question, though, because uh, they did some tests on uh, some, this one woman that was very... Uh, very highly developed in insight. And uh, they were just doing this very same thing. 
asking her you know, how she sees the world, basically, giving her Western psychological test to basically see how, what was going on with her that was different than the, the rest of us. And what they discovered was that her mind considers everything a projection. Everything that's happening here is just a projection of her own mind. Everything that's happening here is just your own mind. But we don't experience that. We think there's something going on up here. We think there's actually people in this room. Don't we? Let's all agree now. I mean, that's... <laughs> However, her, the nature of her mind is that she knows that it's all a projection of her mind, what she sees. So I don't, I don't know if I understand your comment and question, and so I certainly can't answer it. <laughs> but it's a good question. I'll try to understand it. I'll listen to the tape later and try to understand it. <laughs> it's about 8.30. Let me take this one last question. We'll take a short break, and I'll try to uh, figure out what's the most important thing to talk about in, in the last hour. Yeah, please. Um, the part of materiality where I'm yeah. um, I'm just trying to figure out what you in a way, we could say the condition that we have in the body is, is a result of karma. Of course, it's, it's, it's uh, accented or alleviated by you know, how we take care of it, what we do with it, of course. But, I mean, that's, that's karma in this life that makes it does things. But certainly the potential for having eyes at all is karma. And some of these other sources of karma, the mind and the food and the seasonal uh, conditions, can give rise to you know, there being change in uh, the body. So let's take a short. Gabbard, who looked at the chat, there's a lot more information there we're going to get to. So I want to just roughly, uh, briefly, uh, speak a little more about the different sources are the mind-born, heat-born or seasonally-born, and the food-born materiality, and then probably just take questions so that uh, I answer what you would rather know rather than tell you what the books have got to say. But I think it should be very fairly obvious that the mind uh, can influence our physical experience. As I mentioned, when one is angry, uh, of course, the body has a reaction, and we can feel it, uh, tightness and heat and uh, trembling and vibrating or whatever we do. When one is in love, one can feel very light and uh, joyful, and uh, the, the whole body can feel inflated, and uh, it's like you're not even on earth. And... Uh, Sometimes when the mind is uh, highly developed and uh, what is called uh, developing the jhanas or developing the ecstatic uh, uh, absorptions, then uh, very, uh, what would you call, profound physical uh, changes uh, can take place in the, in the body. And I'll find it here soon. Oh, mind boy. For example, when the mind uh, 
uh, is very happy, huh? we smile. The mind that's happy makes the mind, uh, makes the body smile, or makes the body laugh. Or when the, uh, the, the meditative concentration gets uh, to the absorption level or gets to the jhana level, when the mind enters jhana, that ecstatic absorption, whatever posture the body is in at that time, it will not move. If it's standing, if it's tilting, if it's laying down, if it's sitting, whatever it's doing, when it enters that jhana, it won't move till that, uh, that, that power of mind has the ability to hold the body in whatever posture it's in. When the jhana is at a concentrated absorption, when, the, um, when we want to speak, the mind says, I want to speak, and the physical action of sound and moving of the, the body takes place. The mind affects that physical, material experience. When the, uh, uh, not only in speaking, but when I just say, or when I just do this, I can communicate through physical actions because the mind is uh, conditioning that physical communication. And just for the pure, pure curiosity, there is uh, possible when one has developed the higher uh, ecstatic uh, absorptions in the fifth, fifth jhana, when the mind is in a highly equanimous and concentrated state, it is possible to uh, access some what are called supernormal powers, what are called abhinyas, and in such a state of mind, one is able to do some rather fantastic things with the body, like walk on water, Jesus was good at that, uh, flying through the air, other beings are good at that, uh, going diving into the earth, manifesting many forms, creating other physical uh, things, just like this one, in this location or someplace else. And those of you who've read uh, Don Juan or Carlos Castaneda's Don Juan books know that that uh, Don Panero from uh, southern Mexico, who used to come up and work with uh, Carlos on some weekends, used to just create a double and come up and visit and work with Carlos and do a little teaching, and then he would just disappear. And I spent a whole afternoon talking to my Abhidharma teacher one time and having him describe how that was possible through the development of the mind. Deep, ecstatic concentration. Able to create physical form. Anyway, that's interesting. So, so, just a so these, these various... These various mind-born uh, materialities. Let me list them for you. Or probably you have already have them already. Huh? There is the uh, first one, which is uh, the, the, what's called the pure eight. And it's the, uh, just a mind-born materiality. The second one is bodily communication. When... I make some sign or whatever, the body is communicating. And the third one is vocal communication, when the, when the voice is speaking, when the mind uh, conditions sound uh, to be understood. 
and the intention has to be there, of course, to speak and to make myself understood, whether it's through physical actions or through the voice. There is another three, another three uh, material elements that we just talked about. One of them is the body communication and speech communication, number 20 and 21. These are the communicative elements, speaking with the body, speaking with the speech, number 20 and 21. When these abstract elements, hardness and uh, earth, air, fire, and water, and these uh, other elements combine, there is created in their combination space between them. That space is also a material element. Number 19, the element of space. Now, this communication by body or, or speech and space is not an actual physical material uh, reality, but it is a form of, or it's a, a result of these others. And somehow they decided to list it on this because it's a specialized form of material uh, physical not directly experienceable. Space is not directly experienceable. Communication by the body, yes, we see it, but in that case, it's merely a visible form or color. It's not in and of itself a different material experience. Communication by speech is none other than sound. So that's already accounted for through ear and sound material. It's just a specialized form of material uh, experience. Now, when the body is healthy, and this means really, uh, there is a physical experience of being light and healthy and energetic. And the body, uh, being healthy, is also flexible and pliable and it's adaptable. It's able to do many things. These are another three material uh, elements. The alterable elements of 21, uh, 22, 23, and 24. Lightness, softness, and adaptability. Another three uh, alterable material elements, not in and of themselves, uh, actual physical material reality. Uh, reality, but they are qualities of materiality. So that mind-born materiality, the fourth, fifth, and sixth um, groupings are, include these alterable elements the lightness, softness, and adaptability. The fourth is the group of lightness. The fifth is bodily communication with lightness, softness, and adaptability. And the sixth is vocal uh, communication with lightness, softness, and adaptability. Getting a little bit out there. Sorry. I want to just briefly mention the uh, foodborne uh, is when we eat food, that food goes into the bodies and gets digested, and at some point, the essence, the
there is a nutritive essence, uh, whatever it is, that gets to each material space in this body and nourishes it or affects it or conditions that material experience. And this is what is uh, referred to here, these food or the nutri food born or the nutrition, nutritive born uh, material experience. There is the pure group and the group that includes the lightness, softness, and adaptability. What are we left with? So I've talked about the different um, conditions that give rise to different materiality. I've talked about the different types, uh, 24 of them, I guess, of the different uh, experience of materiality. It's important to understand uh, some of these um, what's called the generalized qualities of materiality. And the first is, as I mentioned, that material experience in and of itself is not wholesome or unwholesome. It is what it is. Our mind's relationship to it is either wholesome or unwholesome. They are conditioned by these four, um, primarily by these four, karma, mind, uh, seasonal, and uh, food. But the body is also conditioned by many other things, as we know. And uh, it's important to remember that this, uh, the conditioning of the physical is more than just these four. Each of these material, or at least the first 18, these material experiences can be grasped by the mind. The mind can grasp them and attach to them in a wholesome or in an unwholesome way. And so when we practice, it's these that we see that we're attracted to, attached to, craving, or averse to. It's these that we... Uh, the objects of our meditation. All of these uh, material experiences are in the sensuous sense sphere consciousness. There is no material uh, element that is like or comparable to the enlightened mind. There is no enlightened body. There's no super mundane materiality. The mind can be uh, free. The body is not, is not to be free. You understand that? Huh? Yeah. But it can form. Say it again? The enlightened mind is capable of taking form. The enlightened mind is capable of taking form. I don't know what that means. There are beings. There, there, there are beings who have freed minds, and they, they still are in the body. The Buddha, when he after his enlightenment, after his awakening, had a freed mind. He still had a body. He still experienced pain and heat, and he still had to live with his karma-born materiality, his mind-born. His and when he ate. Uh, he had, you know, upset stomach and back aches and things like that. He still had a body. Huh? Because his mind was free, uh, it's not that the body somehow gets free. 
you know, but he certainly had a body that he had to live with. Yeah. And the material experiences are not to be eradicated. You know, we talk about the unwholesome mind, the uh, mind that is filled with greed, hatred, delusion, uh, sleepiness, etc., being obstructed and unclear and being unwholesome to that degree. And we train the mind to free it from those uh, contaminants of uh, greed, hatred, and delusion. <coughs> the body, we don't have to do any work with the body to free it from its uh, delusion, and greed, hatred, and delusion. It is not in the body. It's not in materiality. It's in the mind that we have these um, defilements or impurities. So, any questions at this point? Yeah. So when you say we are, we don't need to free. You said we don't need to free the body. Right. We don't need to free ourselves from from the body. That's not. When they're in the body, they're not. Unwholesome. They're not unwholesome. They're not wholesome. They're just experience, sensory, sensory experience. Yeah, it's the mind's relationship to material experience so that determines freedom or bondage. Yeah. Right. Right. So, um, um, from some readings that I did, yeah. uh, I understand that there were some certain steps of Buddhism that did not eat meat. At some point. And so I'm just curious as to why, since wholesomeness or unwholesomeness is basically in your mind. Yeah, right. So what, what was the relationship between honey and meat? Yeah, I, I'm not sure what their particular reasoning is. At the, what I can imagine uh, a particular uh, thought would be is. Uh, the mind of hatred or aversion kills animals that then are eating. Eaten. I don't want to contribute to that mind, that quality of mind, so I won't eat meat. But in and of itself, the eating of meat is not uh, wholesome or unwholesome. I, I, I uh, does not necessarily uh, indicate that the mind is freed or attached. The Buddha uh, did not. Uh, make the rule for monks and nuns that they had to abstain from meat. He was asked to make that rule, and he said no, he didn't want to make that rule, because that's, uh, well, that's not, the, that's not the condition of freedom of mind. He did prohibit uh, monks and nuns from, uh, of course, killing animals, and from eating any animal that they knew had been killed for them, and from eating certain kinds of meat. Uh, any animals that had been in the king's service, and, you know, elephants, horses, uh, humans. Uh, also, the wild animals that they might uh, reasonably expect to meet in the forest if they were practicing. Uh, there's lions and tigers, snakes and bears and uh, hyenas or something like that. So there's a group of animals that the Buddha did prohibit monks and nuns from eating, but he did not prohibit generally eating of meat. Other questions? Yeah. Um, so consciousness is made out of some material things like 
consciousness that is not so material? Yeah. Is there is there some materiality to that? The when I talked about the different types of consciousness, consciousness itself is mental. We we there is a whole range of consciousness that are primarily concerned with sensory experience, and that's when sense objects strike, sense doors, eyes, ears, nose, and we have a relationship to that experience. That is, of course, sensory consciousness. When one practices meditation and one enters uh, deep absorption in, in conceptual, in the conceptual world, or enters the mind enters a conceptual experience, then there's, there can be a very subtle or non-existent material uh, component to that. Yeah, it can be definitely it can be consciousness that is not material-based or not included in materiality, yeah. the material, immaterial consciousness, or the experience of the different uh, stages of enlightenment do not include a material uh, experience. Are we feeling chairs or hagness? <laughs> <laughs> if you're feeling hag chairs, well... <laughs> clear. If you're experiencing chair, this is delusion. If you experience hardness, this is clarity. <laughs> so, other questions? Yeah. I think uh, to take the attitude, you know, if, if you had some insight and you took the attitude, oh, well, it doesn't matter anyway because this is all just a protection of the mind, then you're flying in the face of the law of karma. And uh, you better be pretty sure of yourself if you're going to do that. <laughs> <laughs> and it could get you in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. I, yeah, I would think if you, if you saw that. But I, my... My understanding of this this glimpse or this vision of the world as a projection of the mind is not a nihilistic. Um, one doesn't come to that understanding of it. One sees it and sees that the mind can be freed of that. And it's not that nothing exists. One sees both the conventional reality and the abstract, uh, deeper reality behind that. And uh, the beings that I know that are that are most uh, striving towards that type of understanding are far from being careless with their life. Because of the preciousness of human birth. Preciousness of human birth and, and the, 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 what they understand about their mind, you know, and the nature of uh, suffering and happiness. Yeah. One doesn't, 
doesn't suddenly give up their uh, uh, understanding of or search for you know freedom of mind and happiness, ultimate peace. But I think there's something further though. Further? Yeah, there's something more. There's definitely something more. The Buddha said, I mean, the Buddha did say that the whole universe, the whole universe, whatever you can discover anywhere in the universe is to be found in the body. All experience in the universe is found in the body. Everything that you'll ever discover is in the body. And if you train the mind and develop the mind, concentrate the mind, you can discover that. Yeah. Yeah. You talked a little bit earlier about the, the uh, Western psychologists who had done some studies yeah, yeah. the woman who was yeah. having development. And you talked about that what they found was that she actually viewed the world as a projection of her mind. How does that relate to being able to see clearly that everything is this Lux of dancing energy pads. I haven't got a clue. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's just it's just hard for me to hold the two They're really in the mind. Aren't they? Huh? Yeah. They're really different. So yeah. if if the one is sort of the ultimate In one sense there's this dancing in one sense there's this dancing energy of the mind and the mind and body. There's just this dancing, flexing changing mental physical experience we grab onto pieces of it and say oh that's a person that's not a person they're in that relationship and and uh, that's the, but all that all that making of stuff out there happen in understanding is a projection is a, is a projection of the mind there is this reality of the flexing mental physical stuff going on all the time we interpret it and that's a projection of our mind our mind interprets that and makes it people, class, you know, man, <coughs> woman, da 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 da. Is that what she meant? Is that what she? Is that what she meant? The woman who they were testing. I don't know. She was hard to talk to. It was. I mean, everything, everything that came out of her mouth was dharma. You know, it was just, it was just this, this reality. That's, that's, that's where she lived, you know. And uh, you ask her, well, what's going on in your mind? And she says, love and concentration. What else? Love and concentration. That's it. That's all that's going on in her mind. Well, when I have that type of mind, I'll let you know what it's like. It's <laughs> not where I'm at. But, you know, that's, that's the way she would see the world. Yeah? This is a question I've had since last week, and since it seems to be a little bit more free form. Yeah. Why does insight into dukkha, suffering, and impermanence and riches bring about sometimes increased health? Why does insight into dukkha bring about increased self hatred? Identification. The identification. Identification with that suffering as being mine. So you have like partial insight, partial mindfulness, where you're seeing it, but this identification still exists. Yeah, one, 
it often happens, in fact, that we are seeing uh, a lot of dukkha. And we see physical, you know, in experience, we've, we've, we uh, observe and know a lot of physical dukkha, a lot of mental dukkha. Dukkha being, this is unpleasant, basically, very unpleasant. And then we say, well, that's mine. That's me. I am suffering. There's a, it, it's a real, it's a crucial and important distinction to make in practice when you begin to understand the difference between dukkha and personal suffering. Major insight. You know, because then you, be, you begin to say, well, this is personal suffering, and yeah, I really hate that about myself, and I'm a hateful, you know, then it's get, can you really get into self-hatred. Dukkha, on the other hand, is seeing the impersonal nature of unsatisfactory condition. Uh, and then, with, with that level of insight, you, you, your mind gets to, the equanimity in the mind gets quite highly developed, where you can see a lot of dukkha and not identify with it, because the mind is not averse to it, nor uh, grasping onto it as mine. Yeah. Yeah. And, it, I mean, as you know, those who have done some practice, you can, in practice, in that moment of experience, you can experience great dukkha. And there's some, some balance of mind and some equanimity in the mind, and there's not attachment to it. And you get up from that sitting, uh, you know, and you go get a tea, and you say, God, that was really terrible. Man, that's awful. And we identify with it then. In reflection, we identify with it as my experience. My body, my mind. My terrible mind, it's all so black and yucky. Huh? <laughs> Meditate, you'll see. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it's the, the reflection uh, after the experience that uh, often where we attach to and claim it as my personal experience. And yet in the moment of that experience, there was no, no I there to claim it. Yeah. What is it that moves from life to life? Ooh, another common question. Uh, what is it that moves from life to life? Okay. It's not self, apparently. No. Soul. No. Okay. No. This is another common question. Uh, let me just ask you, what has moved from ten years ago to now in this room? You. What has moved from there to there? None, no cell in the body is the same now as it was ten years ago. My memories. Okay, memory, if you were here last week, I talked about the different mental factors. Uh, what was it? About the third one was perception. That's memory. Okay, memory is just a mental state, mental factor that comes and goes. It's not you. Okay, so memories, yeah, what else? <laughs> I, you know, it's here and gone. If you think your memory has, has, has come from uh, 10 years ago, let me ask you. Ten years ago today, March 20, what was it, 24th? Did you know? March 23rd. What'd you have for lunch? Your memory, I'm sorry, did not come with you from ten years ago. Okay, anything else? What else has come from ten years ago? Nothing. And yet we're attached to something. We got some identification. We think something has come from ten years ago to now. <laughs> Yeah. The potential of our 
Yeah, that's right. There's a potential uh, result from our actions. The, the, the karma, term. basically. The karmic bundle. The karmic bundle gets carried on from moment to moment. Bundle, I guess. <laughs> bundle? <laughs> bundle? And, and in fact, when one dies from this existence as a human being, that potential in the mind is passed from this existence to the first relinked, relinking consciousness of the next existence. The materiality is in a different place. Karma born materiality takes up somewhere else. Another sphere of another plane of existence. It might be another human existence in the house next door, but it might be another plane of existence. That's a whole karma. I should do a whole talk on karma. Yeah. Yeah. Thing. <laughs> ah, yeah, that's, 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 karma is a really interesting one. I will go through the uh, stream of consciousness at death next week. And just to show you, at this moment you're thinking this, at this moment something else, in this moment you die, and the next moment is conditioned by that moment. Right? So that the rebirth, the relinking consciousness is conditioned by your last thought in the past life. That relinking consciousness is the, is the consciousness most present with you in this whole life. That's rooted in your past life. I'll show you that next week, uh, Thursday. Yeah. I have a question that is, uh, deals with karma, but it also deals with qualities of mind. Yeah. You made this statement that uh, uh, accumulation of karma can overcome heredity. But in, that, in the process of rebirthing, can a quality of mind be passed as a part of that accumulation? Or is it simply the, in the circumstances for the quality of mind to arise? No, of course, the quality of mind that one develops is what is past, in fact. Okay, so, so hypothetically, you could even have a, an odd situation where you have parents that, hey, that to use a, a kind of gross measurement, yeah. are like average in intelligence. Mm -hmm. You could have a child that's literally has twice as much intelligence as the parents. And this has to do with quality of mind being brought over? Can be. Now, quality of intelligence. Uh, well, that's a different thing. Yes, had a major. That, that's that's yeah. a different. But let, let's just say that one can be very mindful in this life, and you know, but quality of mindfulness and wisdom. Let's say the wisdom that one develops in this life is okay. what is the quality of mind in the next life. Mm, definitely. That's why we do it. <laughs> that's why we develop our minds is so that it does influence. But you're saying it is the quality of mind itself, and not just the conditions in which that the quality of mind develops. It's not. It's not exclusively one thing. You know, there's. It's a very. Uh, I mean, it's a multiplicity of factors. You know, that, that give rise to, you know, where one is reborn, and mm. the qualities of mind that one has. But, you know, one's karmic action, is, that's the baggage that you get, that you get in your next life, and so that the more wholesome and skillful, and pure the karmic is, karmic actions are now the more they will be, the more that influences, hmm? or the more you'll feel the effect of that in the future life. Yeah. Are those who are born in the higher realms, yeah. they get reborn as well? No. They have karma as well? What can you do up there? <laughs> <laughs> bliss out. <laughs> so then, if you just bliss out, then where's no. the unwholesomeness? Oh, no, in, in those, in those uh, higher planes, 
and I don't really want to go into the whole cosmology, but in those higher planes, you know, the, the, the mind is in a very rare form, very blissed out. It's reaping lots of good karma. Eventually, beings in those realms also die. Uh, they may live to be, you know, they may live hundreds of thousands of lifetimes compared to earth life, but eventually they die and they are reborn somewhere. Maybe on earth, maybe below earth. Maybe as a human, maybe lower than human. And maybe they check out. You know, maybe they go higher. There's, there's a whole range of, goodness, that's a whole talk to the different cosmology and how you go from one to the next and why you go and what it's like there and how long you live and how you die. And, yeah. Is, is okay. it that uh, when Gautama said that the gods were arrogant and haughty, uh, did you think he meant that uh, they did not have the right qualities of mind? Well, no, no, that's not what I'm saying. Did you think that they did not have a kind of potential for qualities of mind to, for enlightenment, or what was he talking about? Oh, yeah, you don't have to be enlightened to be born in those realms. You know, you can, there's, there's, they, they have some pretty, pretty hard times up there. You know, jealousy, yeah, they still have jealousy and envy, and, and uh, they, they, can, they can have some pretty unpleasant mind states also. Is there accidents in that cosmology? <laughs> I have a friend. I have a friend who, when she was oh, 16 or 17, and this was 27, 30 years ago, she decided she was going to India to uh, find her spiritual teacher. And the night before she left, Trungpa was speaking in, uh, Trungpa Rinpoche was speaking in uh, wherever she was living in uh, New York. And so she went to see him. And she said, she got the chance to ask him a question. And she said, uh, you know, I'm going to uh, India tomorrow, and I'm going looking for a spiritual teacher, and uh, I wonder if you could give me any advice. And Trungpa said, uh, something to the effect that, well, uh, whatever happens, uh, it's best for you to believe that it's accident. <laughs> Meaning, it isn't. <laughs> Wait, what does that mean? <laughs> huh? We, we think there are accidents. We think we run into people accidentally. Uh, you know, we, we meet teachers accidentally and, uh, you know, we fall in love with somebody accidentally. It's not accident. Oh, because, you know, if you, if you understand that it's all, it's already, it's not that it's already written, but it's, you know, all the seeds are already planted. Or whatever happens to you, the seeds are already planted. Yeah. And what would that knowledge do? Oh, some people, were, some people would get very upset thinking that. <laughs> Look, it's getting um, close to... Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.